0: Okay, Matthew 16, and we'll finish Matthew 16 today. We'll be looking at verses 21 down through verse 28. Before we read the passage, uh, just a little bit of catching up, last week, Uh, We saw the great confession of Peter, that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. And we talked about the idea that this event would have been a a pinnacle experience in the lives of the disciples, in their learning and in their growing and in their their discipleship. And from that point on, everything would be different. From that point on, the, the scene changed, probably both in their minds, the way they thought about what Jesus was doing and saying, But also the scene began to change in the way that Jesus' ministry looked. And we're going to see that as we continue through. Matthew starts verse 21, where we're going to pick up with from that time or or, beginning then. That's a phrase that, that Matthew has used once before at another major transition point in Jesus' ministry. It was the time when John's ministry started to wane, John the Baptist that is, And Jesus began his ministry with the preaching of that message, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And now we're at another major point of change. As Jesus in this passage begins to speak, as we'll see explicitly about his death and his resurrection. And within a couple chapters, Jesus will begin to make his steady journey toward Jerusalem where these things will take place. In these verses, there are a lot of wonderful, wonderful things going on, but they are, they are, in essence, wonderful and daunting at the same time. For instance, Jesus predicting his own death is powerful and an amazing thing, especially when we can read it from the other side, so to speak. But for the disciples who had followed him now for the last two or three years, it would have been an incredibly daunting thing to hear. Hard to accept, and we will see that. Then there's Jesus teaching in in the later verses on what it looks like to follow him and what this idea of, of his death means for those who follow him. And as we'll see, that will be both wonderful and daunting at the same time. Wonderful because he bids us to follow him, but daunting because sometimes following him looks a lot like death too. More on that when we come to it. And then there's this promise of Jesus concerning his second coming, a promise that, again, is both wonderful and daunting. For at one hand, the very fact that he promises to come back is amazing and sweet. But he also tells us the promise has to do with with judgment and reward, which can be a little daunting to think about wonderful and daunting, sweet and bitter. Uh, This is kind of the theme in all of these verses, the the idea of of sorrow before glory, of suffering before exaltation. This passage is a, a call to follow the Lord, regardless of certain difficulties that it will bring. After all, our God is sovereign and working in all things. Both things we see as good and things we see as bad. You might remember from a couple years ago when we were in Isaiah, uh, Isaiah 45, verse 7 says this. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things that reminded me of, of the story of Job and we can't recount the whole thing, but in the beginning of the story and in chapter two specifically, when the Lord had allowed Satan to affect Job's health and his, his wife looks at him in his pitiful condition. And she says, why don't you just curse God and die? And Job's response to her was this, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In other words, Can we only accept the things in our life that God allows that are good? Or can we accept the things that he allows that are not so good as well? And it notes there that in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. He was speaking faithfully there. Yes, in God's plan, in the kingdom, suffering comes before glory. Hardship often comes before before victory. So if you're following along in the bulletin, the main idea today is that the disciples had to submit to the fact that Jesus had to die. And because of his death, may we submit our lives totally as we follow him. Let's read Matthew 16, beginning in verse 21, following down through. You can read on the screen. Also, uh, we did Uh, get some new pew bibles and uh i think it's on page 771 if you want to find it quickly and follow along if you didn't have your own bible but i encourage you to follow along as we read matthew 16 beginning in verse 21 from that time jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it In his kingdom. Lord, I pray that you would give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see as we look at these words, Lord. Words again that are, are bitter and sweet at the same time. And would we able to be would we be able to take both the bitter and the sweet as from you, as this message that you gave, Lord Jesus, first to, to Peter and the other disciples? This difficulty of, of accepting. Of coming to terms with and then living in what you have done. Or this affects us all very specifically. Because we too must make these same decisions daily. And I pray that we would be encouraged to do that as we read your word today. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, First we see the death of Christ. The death of Christ. And again, this is coming directly off an interaction with Peter after that great confession. And you have to wonder, at least I wonder, what kind of an emotional high would Peter have been on after this experience? They were just told in no uncertain terms that their master and Lord was Lord of all the universe, the the Son of God, the Messiah. They were told that he had a, a plan to build his church. To build his people, that is, and and that not even the gates of hell, the power of death, would triumph over his efforts. You could say in one sense that their dreams were coming true. They were part of the chosen number of the deliverer himself, a master whose work was on an unshakable kingdom with a sure future. Would they have been elated? Probably. Were they filled with questions and wonder? Probably. Were they off in la-la land, thinking of all that this might mean? Possibly. We see Jesus' prediction, though, in verse 21. Uh, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now, maybe it was immediately after this conversation with Peter, maybe he gave them a little bit of time to to soak in what they had heard. But regardless, it wasn't long because Matthew says at that time he began to and really he continued to show them the truth about his death. The truth that first he must go to Jerusalem. Now, in a previous passage, we saw a delegation from Jerusalem coming to Jesus to confront him. But that time Jesus left them and he 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 went out of Israel altogether for a reprieve. Uh, Really, up until this point, he had evaded too much controversy. There had been quite a few controversies, but they never turned into anything, so to speak. He, He had even evaded being crowned king by a crowd after he fed them miraculously. And also what was probably helpful in this is that his ministry wasn't located in the population center of Israel. He wasn't near Jerusalem where the majority of the religious leaders were. But this time he would go there willingly. He would walk the path toward what was planned for him. He said, I must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. And without reading ahead, we know what he will suffer. Mocking, questioning, trials, scorn, lies, beatings, shame. The word for suffering almost always refers to physical pain, and he certainly would experience the worst, excruciating pain but he would experience it all all physically, yes, but also emotionally and spiritually. As he goes to Jerusalem before his death, we're gonna hear him, see him cry out, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered your children as a hen gathers her chicks? But you would not. There was this real pain of the rejection that he knew he would face in one sense, but still it was rather sharp. He would suffer many things and he would be killed. Now, this might've been the the unbelievable part for the disciples. They may could see him going to Jerusalem. They they may could see him having controversy, more controversy with the, the Jewish leaders. They may could see him even facing some sort of physical altercations because of this, but to be killed Their Lord, their master, the Messiah, what could this mean? Now, of course, he also told them that he would be raised on the third day. But as we get into the, the conversation here, it's almost as if they either skipped over this portion of the prediction, like they heard the part about suffering and death, and then everything else was just a wash after that. It took preeminence in their thinking. And no doubt, that's why it says that Jesus began to teach these things. Uh, He began to show them these things. That is, he began to make them clear. He spoke uh, plainly. Uh, He painted a a vivid picture. There was no question what he was talking about. And the language kind of indicates that he had to do this continually over and over again. Because it took them a while to get it. Now, he had alluded to his death before, but he had never really spoken explicitly about it. He had spoken about the the sign of the prophet Jonah, where the son of man would be in the heart of the earth for three days. But they might not have picked it up from that. He had spoken of the idea before of taking up your cross to follow him. But they had not put the pieces together. And we see that in Peter's denial. Look at verse 22, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And if Peter was a spokesperson in the last passage where he made the great confession, then I think we might take him as the spokesperson here as well. Now notice the exchange. Uh, Jesus began to show them the things of his death and then Peter sort of interrupts. And then Peter began to rebuke him, it says. And then we'll see in verse 23 that, that Jesus interrupts him. Now, what does Peter say? He says, far be it from you, Lord. In other words, nothing like this is, should even be in your thinking. Uh, Have you ever jumped to conclusions and you're talking to someone sort of explaining to them how you feel that the worst is going to happen? Or, you know, you sort of have that that doomsday attitude towards something and then maybe a more level headed person comes and says, don't even let your mind go there. That's not even a remote possibility. That's the furthest thing away from what we're dealing with right now. Well, that's kind of what Peter is is trying to do. He's saying, that's ridiculous, Lord. Don't even go down that path. This will never happen to you. Now, it might've been that Peter was emboldened by the revelation he had received from God, that Jesus was the Messiah. And with that information, surely he thought, well, the deliverer won't die. The redeemer won't perish. That's silly. It's almost like Peter is saying, Jesus, Don't you remember what your father just just told me? You're not thinking straight. He, He wouldn't let this happen. But Peter had gone beyond what was revealed to him, which brings up this idea that when we go beyond what is revealed from God, we go into our own imagination and our own thinking and our own devices. More on that in a second. Let's keep reading though. Jesus turned verse 23 to Peter, and I imagine that he probably turned toward him and said very directly, Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. We're meant to feel the weight of that rebuke. It feels harsh. Because it is very strong, but it was it was pointed and strong for a reason. Jesus wanted Peter to know that in this suggestion that, no, you will never die, Lord. In that suggestion, Peter had taken up the position, not of God, but of the enemy himself. You are a hindrance to me, he says. Now, the way this is sort of structured, it reminds us of Matthew 4. Remember what happened in Matthew 4? Jesus was in the wilderness fasting for 40 days, and then Satan comes to him to tempt him. And he tempts him in three ways. First, he tempts him with food. But Jesus answered, Matthew 4, 4, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then Satan tempts Jesus with an opportunity to display his his glory, his his authority by jumping off the temple and then his angels would bear him up. Well, Jesus said again, it is written, Matthew four, seven, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Well, then finally, Satan tempts Jesus with the opportunity to have rulership over all the kingdoms of the world without any battle without any suffering, you could say. He simply would have to bow down and worship Satan. Well, Jesus responded, Matthew 4.10, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Now, that third temptation of, of Satan to Jesus is exactly what the denial of Peter looks like. Jesus, you don't have to suffer. You don't have to go through all this. You don't need to die. And probably unwittingly, Peter had had taken the position that the devil took for himself. Jesus said, Peter, you are a hindrance to me. That word hindrance is is the word for stumbling stone. And Jesus might have intended this as a play on words because he had just given Peter this name of rock, Petros, rock. But now he says, Peter, you've become a stumbling stone. Now, what was the difference? Well, in the first case where Jesus called Peter the rock, Peter had relied on what he had received from God, that revelation that Jesus was the Messiah. But in this case, Peter was relying not on God's revelation, but on his own wisdom, his own sensibility, for instance, his own idea, his own preferences. He had gone beyond what God had revealed and had filled in the rest on his own. Now, that ought to be a a simple but firm warning to us. We can never go beyond what God has told us and fill in the rest of the details and expect that we have it all right. Now we can do this in many ways, just a couple examples. We, we can go beyond when we try to place God in a, a box built by our own imagination. We can go beyond when we try to deny hardship or pain because it, it doesn't fit our idea of what God is like. We can go beyond when we take God's character and shape it to look more like us and and speak for him, saying things like, well, my God would never allow that, or the God I know wouldn't be so narrow-minded, all the while not relying on what we know, what God has actually said, rather on what we feel. Going from revelation to feeling is a common temptation. What, What do I mean by that? I mean that we know certain things about God and his plan and his character. But then we try to extrapolate the rest based on our own wisdom. That gets us into trouble. In this case, Peter had just admitted that Jesus was the Christ, the son of the living God. But then in the next conversation, at least the next one we read, he claims to know more about God's plan than the Son of God himself. Now that seems so foolish, but we often would do the same. And to state it sharply, when we take up a position that is opposite of what God has revealed, we take up the position like Peter, of Satan himself. And we might do it unwittingly, we might not do it on purpose, But we must be careful not to fill in what God has left blank with our own ideas. We see here, Peter was wrong. Bold, but wrong. Peter, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on things of man. Well, We go from the death of Christ to the death of self. And I think this flows right out of this conversation as Jesus had to explain to them. He told his disciples, verse 24, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life, verse 25, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now, up until this point, and even including this from what we read, Jesus hasn't explicitly mentioned a cross in terms of his death. All we have so far is that he says, I have to go to Jerusalem, suffer many things and die and be raised again on the third day. So his disciples didn't know that he would be crucified. They just knew that he was going to die. But that doesn't mean that they don't know what a cross is. In fact, they would have as a Roman controlled society that was sort of ruled by Roman puppet leaders. The Israelites had become, no doubt, very familiar with Roman crucifixion as a means of execution. And we'll certainly speak more about it when we get to the story of Jesus' crucifixion. But suffice it to say, there really had been no method of death devised that was more excruciatingly painful, drawn out and long, humiliating to the individual, and terror instilling for those who were watching. Yes, the cross in a public place and the person upon it, there hanging, dying, were meant to instill a public, Warning, you don't want to do this. You don't want to come here. Whatever this guy did, don't do that. To see a a criminal carrying his his cross beam up to the place of crucifixion was to see a man who had been brought to the lowest point, had given up all his, his life by his choices and actions, He was stripped of his clothing, stripped of his dignity, robbed of his strength by beatings, and now at a place where his only move left was simply to die. Peter and the other 11 would have known what a cross was and what it meant. And now Jesus was telling them that it had meaning for them as his disciples. Now, he had mentioned this once before. In Matthew 10, we read this. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So we've read that again, and that was right at the beginning of most of the disciples' time of following Jesus. And maybe it was fuzzy then. This time, Jesus says it right after he says, I'm going to suffer and die. And if you want to follow me, you've got to take up your cross to do so. And that, the the first and most literal sense of this, is that there would be many including most of the disciples hearing this, who would have to die for the sake of following Jesus. Uh, for, for most of them standing there, remaining faithful to the Lord would mean the same kind of shame and humiliation and even similar kinds of execution that the Lord himself would face. And many would follow them. Many have taken the beatings, the imprisonment, the starving, the beheading, the knife, the bullet for being true to Jesus' name. Even in our day in other places in the world, this is happening. And we're so far removed from this kind of suffering that we have a hard time even imagining it. We might even be prone to taking up Peter's place and think, Lord, this, this will never be. We live in a nation with, with many believers. We'll never face this kind of suffering. All the while denying the very real possibility that it might be God's plan for us to suffer in this way. Now, taking up a cross, though, is not only here in reference to a physical death. In fact, the taking up of the cross was not the dying at all. But rather, it was the death march. Just as we will see Jesus do, the criminal would carry his cross beam from the place of conviction to the place of death. That march, that walk, bearing that physical burden and all the public scorn and the shame that goes along with it was a walk which was totally submitted to the death that was to come. So Jesus is saying that the life of following him is a life in which we've already come to terms with the fact that our life is not ours anymore. To take up the cross of following Jesus is to admit and to live in such a way that acknowledges Christ's total lordship and our total subservience to him. Now, Jesus is saying this to Peter and the disciples after Peter just gave us an example of of what not to do. And for the disciples and Peter, the immediate application was that they needed to accept Jesus' own prediction about his death and suffering. They had to accept that the suffering would preclude the glory, that the shame would come before the victory. And for us, that is the same token. We've already seen Christ's death as we've read the rest of the scriptures. And because of that, we must admit that for us too, sorrow must come before the exaltation the shame must become or must come before the glory jesus would say in the gospel of john a little bit later date after his or at the end of his upper room teaching i have said these things to you that in may, in me you may have peace in the world you will have tribulation but take heart i have overcome the world Can we take up our crossbeam, so to speak, and, and walk that walk that's aimed toward the whole idea that our life is not ours? Can we readily admit that we will have suffering, at least in some form, for the name of Jesus? Can we admit, that, that like Job, that the Lord brings to us both days of pleasure and days of pain? Can we say, like the Apostle Paul, that we've learned in whatever state we are, whatever condition, hungry or filled, rich or poor, that we are content? Jesus says in verse 25, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The life of following Jesus is a life of of apparent opposites. That is, when we take the commonly accepted approach of the world, of success and fortune and and of self-saving, then Jesus says we lose it all. And Peter, again, is a perfect example of that in his denial. He went with his gut, but he didn't go with God. And for us, if we go with our gut, with what feels right, or maybe more temptingly, with what is commonly accepted and normal, then we take a different path than what God has called us to walk on. When we selfishly deny hardship, when we say, I don't deserve this, when we say, Lord, this can't be your plan." we might be spitting in the very face of God's actual plan for us. But on the other hand, when we lay down our life, when we do the death march of following Jesus, we are assured life. And we know from the rest of the scriptures that the life Jesus gives is eternal. In little terms, you might call it delayed gratification, you might call it discipline, you call it whatever you want, but it's it's even more than those things. The crosswalk is peaceful because it's it's not simply talking about physical death, but it's submitted to the total control of the Lord, who we know is good, who we know is powerful, and who we know is watching over his own. Then Jesus asks a question in verse 26. He says, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall man give in return for his soul? Now, this question almost needs no explanation. We, we see it all the time. People given to success with, with that fame and success as their driving motive. There, there are no shortage of those examples. Now, there are also no shortage of of amazing people in the world, people that accomplish wonderful things. Uh, If you're a baseball fan, you may have seen in the last couple days that uh, Albert Pujols, a very famous player now for the the Cardinals, he just hit his 700th home run. Uh, If you're a baseball guy, you know that's a big deal because uh, um, Babe Ruth, Hank Aaron, Barry Bonds, and Albert Pujols are the only four to ever do that. And uh, when I was a kid, I remember when Albert Pujols was a rookie and he was a star player from the beginning. And when I was a kid also as a young baseball player, I might've said that hitting 700 home runs in the major league or in the MLB might be a a life goal worth giving everything for. But yet we uh, we hear the testimonies of those who have achieved these kinds of goals, who say afterward that After all is said and done, they weren't as satisfying as they might have thought. There's a strange paradigm. Oftentimes star athletes, for instance, will either go on to ruin their life or they'll go on to build some sort of a foundation or a charity because they've got to do more than just play baseball. What if we gain the whole world, Jesus says? Now dictators and rulers have tried to do that very thing to conquer lands and destroy other peoples for the sake of gain. Yet each one of them is facing their own deeds. And once you have forfeited your soul for the pursuit of the world, what can you give to get it back? This is a hypothetical question. The answer apparently is nothing. It's, it's a one way transaction. Once you've given your whole life to gain the world and your life is gone, what left do you have to give to get your soul back? No, the only way to save your life is to give it up. To follow Jesus. That's the only exchange that works out positively for us in the end. So we could ask, have you commenced this this crosswalk, this death march? And what does that look like practically? Well, I offered you a few scriptures. Galatians 2 verse 20. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Later in that same letter, Paul says in Galatians 5, 24, that those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And again, in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Practically speaking, we may never be killed for the name of the Lord Jesus, but the life of following Jesus is still a death march. What do I mean by that? Well, it says we just read, crucifying our passions, saying no to self and yes to what God has said in his word, no to the urges of the flesh and yes to the leading of the Holy Spirit. We see these things as, as little deaths we get a glimpse of not only how much of a real struggle it is, but we're also reminded of the value. This phrase isn't new with me and I I couldn't find the author or the person where I first read this, but I'll say it anyway. Uh, A day in the life of a Christian is made up of a thousand little deaths. For each time we say no to self, we're crucifying our flesh. But it rears its ugly head back up in another moment, another interaction, another relationship, another decision. And that's why the crosswalk is a death march. And a death march is not a one time decision. Think of it it's a thousand little decisions. Each step forward is another decision. Each moment in life is a time where we say, I'm want to kill my flesh and the passions of it. I want to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. A thousand little deaths as we take up our cross and follow him. Do you see your walk with Christ like this? A thousand little deaths knowing that at the end, is true life. Well, in the last few moments, see verse 27 and 28, where Jesus makes another prediction. He says, the son of man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the son of man coming in his kingdom. Another prediction here, this time about his coming and his judgment. And we can summarize simply and say, what we do now counts, what we do now matters. But from another angle, Jesus was telling them that his death matters. For his death and what we'll see, his resurrection and his ascension, is all part of his going away, going away rather. He speaks a lot about that in the Gospel of John, for instance. He promised that he would have to leave, he would have to go away. And his going away will be critical, as we see in John 14 and also at the end of Matthew, for preparing a place for his people that we might be with him but his going away is also critical for the judgment and the vindication work that he will do. There will be ultimate glory, coming in the glory of the Father with his angels, and there will be justice, a repayment to each for what he has done. For his followers, life. But for those who sought to gain the whole world, He's already said, they will lose their soul. Eternity will be a torment. Now, verse 28 is hard to understand. I'll just say that simply. And if you ask five different authors or preachers or Bible study uh, officials, experts, you probably get five different Answers to exactly what Jesus was talking about. And I won't claim to have the final word on this. We'll know one day. And uh, it doesn't really change anything a whole lot if we disagree. But here's a few few things it might be talking about. Jesus says there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man come in his kingdom. It might be his resurrection. Where he returns, so to speak, from the death. Some say it might be uh, the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, where the Lord sends his comforter. He says, John, I will not leave you comfortless. And he sends the comforter. It might be uh, the destruction of Jerusalem around AD 70, which could be seen as a coming of judgment. A lot of early Christians saw that is from the hand of the Lord. But it might be what we see in the next chapter too, which is the transfiguration. Now, I tend to think it could be, as prophecies often are, it could be several fulfillments that are parallel or or partial fulfillments and complete fulfillments. And given how Matthew records the transfiguration right after this, And it's similar in Mark and Luke. I think that what we're going to look at next week is at least partial fulfillment of what Jesus said there in that promise. So you'll have to come back next week as we study it together. But for now, hear that call of Jesus to take up our cross and follow Discipleship, step by step. A thousand little deaths. Jesus so willingly gave up his life. With far more at stake than what we have. May we heed his call to give up ours as well.